Father, we do most humbly come before you now as your people and ask you by your grace, by your spirit, whom we have through your Son, to enable us to hear your voice and the voice of our Lord. Give us hearts to respond in truth to all that you reveal to us, to be increased in our worship, to be motivated even more greatly in our obedience, ultimately because of all that you have done for us in the gospel and in your dear and beloved Son, in whose name we pray, amen. Open your Bible again to Matthew chapter 24. Matthew chapter 24, as we look at the second part of what we began last week, namely the beginning of the end, the birth pangs, that are coming upon the world, mentioned by Jesus in verses 4 through 14 of Matthew 24. Last week we noted that in verses 4 through 14, this section, that Jesus begins to answer the question of the disciples that they asked back in verse 3. Namely, tell us when will these things happen? That, referring to the destruction of the temple that would come in 70 AD. And then what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? We noted also that Jesus is beginning by answering the last question first. In other words, he begins in this first section by discussing the end of the age. The end of the age. And he lists several characteristics of this final age, and he identifies them in verse 8 as being the beginning of birth pangs. The beginning of birth pangs. These then are not the final events, but they do mark an identifiable period that will immediately precede the end and the final coming of the Messiah. Note he says at the end of verse 14 that after these things and then the end will come. After the beginning of these birth pangs, it will be then an entrance into the full experience of labor, as it were. Now, in the mind of the disciples, the events of Messiah's coming, the consummation of the ages or the end of the ages, were, in fact, a complex of events that were to take place in a short period of time, namely seven years, which was not drawn, obviously, from Revelation 20, but was a part of the Jewish understanding of the messianic woes that would come upon the earth just before the final establishment of the kingdom of the Messiah. One of these components was a period of destruction and suffering that would come upon the wicked. It would end in the salvation of the Jews. And this time of suffering was, in their mind, associated with those labor pains of birth. Therefore, the imagery of the birth pains here is borrowed from some apocryphal literature, but also primarily from the Old Testament, the Old Testament prophetic anticipation of the judgment that would precede Messiah's establishment of His kingdom on the earth. Let me give you just one example of this out of Isaiah chapter 13. Isaiah chapter 13. Speaking of this coming judgment, this day of the Lord, this aspect of the day of the Lord that would be this final destruction on the earth. He says this in verse 6, Wail, for the day of the Lord is near, it will come as destruction from the Almighty. Therefore all hands will fall limp, and every man's heart will melt. 
They will be terrified. Pains and anguish will take hold of them. They will writhe like a woman in labor. They will look at one another in astonishment and their faces aflame. Behold, the day of the Lord is coming, cruel with fury and burning anger, to make the land a desolation, and he will exterminate its sinners from it. For the stars of heaven and their constellations will not flash forth their light. The sun will be dark when it arises. The moon will not shed its light. Thus I will punish the world for its evil and the wicked for their iniquity. And I will put an end to the arrogance of the proud and abase the haughtiness of the ruthless. I will like make mortal man scarcer than pure gold and mankind than the gold of Ophir. Therefore I will make the heavens tremble and the earth will be shaken from its place at the fury of the Lord of hosts in the day of His burning anger. This wrath is mentioned in several places and anticipated by the people of God. And they certainly understood that. This period then, this period of coming judgment before the appearance of the Messiah is a concentrated period, unlike any other period the earth has ever known. In fact, Jesus brings that out in verse 21 of Matthew 24, particularly when there is this what is known as the Great Tribulation. He says, Such has not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever will. It is a unique period of destruction. It is a global period of destruction and judgment. It is universal. And again, it is the end just before the appearing of the Messiah. And it is a period that is divided essentially into two equal parts. We mentioned and we'll look at more next week. Three and a half years. The first part being marked by relative peace, though there is much destruction. The middle part being marked by the final revelation of the Antichrist in verse 15. And the terrible persecution of the Jews. It is a terrible, terrible Time coming upon the earth. Now, again, Jesus addresses the first part, the beginning of this destruction, in verses 4 through 14. Last week, we looked at the beginning of the end in verses 4 through 8, and we'll consider the final part this morning, the end of that beginning in verses 9 through 14. Read with me, and then we'll look at it more closely. Beginning in verse 4. And Jesus answered and said to them, See to it that no one misleads you. For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and will mislead many. You will be hearing of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not frightened, for those things must take place, but that is not yet the end. For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. And in various places there will be famines and earthquakes. But all these things are merely the beginning of birth pangs. They will deliver you to tribulation and will kill you. And you will be hated by all nations because of my name. And at that time, many will fall away and will betray one another and hate one another. Many false prophets will arise and will mislead many. And because lawlessness is increased, most people's love will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end, he will be saved. This gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all the nations. And then the end will come. Let's note back, going back to verse 9 then, the end of the beginning. And notice first that there is a universal treachery. A universal treachery. 
Then they will hand you over to tribulation and will kill you, and you will be hated by all nations because of my name. Now there's a certain shift in the picture that Jesus is painting for us that begins here in verse 9. And the shift is this. In verses 4 through 8, the terrible circumstances described were essentially impersonal. There are, are going to be these things outside of you, these things happening in the world, famines, earthquakes, wars, false Christ, deception, etc. But here he changes the focus and he moves to a personal experience of this destruction and wrath that is going to come upon those, the world, and even going to be suffering by those who name the name of Christ in these last days. It is a personal hatred and suffering that will be endured by his people. Notice he says that you will be betrayed, you will be handed over, you will be delivered over. By who? The they. Essentially those who are in positions of authority. These are Gentile courts mentioned in Mark 13. These are Jewish courts. These are a united world against the name of Christ. Now Jesus earlier warned of the betrayal of His people that His disciples would endure at the hand of their own nation. So this is not totally unexpected. Remember Matthew 10. He told them that I send you out as Sheep in the midst of wolves, in verse 16, so be shrewd as serpent and incident as doves. But beware of men, for they will hand you over, same word, to the courts, and scourge you in their synagogues, and you will even be brought before governors and kings for my sake as a testimony to them and to the Gentiles. When they hand you over, don't worry about what you are to say. It will be given you in that hour what you are to say, for it is not you who speak, but it is the Spirit of your Father who speaks in you. In other words, betrayal is going to come, suffering is going to come, persecution is going to come, in that case from the ungodly generation of Jews and even the Gentile powers of the world. They are, in fact, students who are not above their teacher. As they persecuted Christ, so they will persecute those who belong to Christ. And Jesus was indeed handed over by his own people, even by one of his own disciples, false disciples, Judas, to great suffering. The you here then is specifically referring, however, not only to the disciples and what will be experienced at some measure by Christ's people throughout the world, but it is here to those that are going to be naming the name of Christ in the beginning of the birth pains, in the beginning of this final period this period preceding the coming of Christ. The coming of Christ. It will be to tribulation, he says. You'll be handed over to tribulation, which essentially has the idea of trouble and suffering. And he explains it more. What is this tribulation going to entail? He says they will kill you and you will be hated by all nations. You will be hated by all nations. 
And again, though Jesus is referring here to an intense time, a specific time, an identifiable time, a unique time that is coming upon the earth, because there is the spirit of lawlessness in the world, because as we looked at before, we are in the last days that began with the ascension of Christ back to the hand of the Father, because the spirit of Antichrist is already in the world, First John, there is going to be a mark of this suffering throughout the life of of the church. Again, this kind of threat was consistent in the life of Jesus. In Matthew chapter 5, as we read often in the life of Jesus, it says, For this reason, therefore, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. That was indeed the constant threat throughout his life and of his disciples and early witnesses throughout much of their own. Jesus said that a time would come in John 16 when those who kill you will think that He is offering service to God. So suffering has in one sense always been a part of the church's experience. She is a light to the world in darkness. She speaks truth in a world that loves error and lies. She pursues holiness in a world that loves sin. And so there is going to be an animosity. There's going to be always a hatred which he mentions next, you will be hated by all the nations because of my name. Again, this persecution springs from a deep and a profound hatred of the world under the influence of the Antichrist. Listen to what he says in John chapter 3. You're familiar with it. Let me remind you. John chapter 3 verse 19, he says this, This is the judgment that the light has come into the world and men love the darkness rather than the light for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed as evil. You are light again in a dark world. Therefore, the world hates you as it hated Christ. He says to them in John 15, 18, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. That is at the heart of it, at the essence of it, the relationship that exists between Christ and a fallen world that is in rebellion to Him. It is one of the world's hatred towards His own. The world's hatred towards His own. And again, this has been a theme of history A theme of history. James says that if you want to be friends with the world, it puts you at enmity with God. Enmity with God. And vice versa, to be friends with God puts you at enmity with the world. It puts you in opposition to the world. And so he says, because of my name, because of my name, those who identify then with him are going to line up on the side of Christ and experience the opposition that comes as a result of it. Now notice here what he says back in verse 5. He says, Many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ. And here he says that his own will be persecuted because of his name. In other words, those false teachers who are going to come are going to be a part of the persecutors because of the deception. It's not simply the name of Christ alone. 
But it is those who want to blend the name of Christ with this false religious system who are going to then be the persecutors of the true followers of Christ. There will be an apostate church that is friends with the world and that is an enmity with God. But those who are the true followers of Christ, those who here name the name of Christ in truth, who demonstrate His life, will find themselves at odds with this evil world system. Yet they are those who have exchanged their life for His. Exchanged their life for His. And you know, the anger here is not so much against Christians themselves. It's not because of what they do. It is because of who they identify with. It is a hatred of the evil one against God Himself. We as the church and God's people throughout the ages then in their suffering are filling up the suffering that is meant for Christ. Listen to what Paul says in Colossians 1.24. He says, I rejoice in my suffering for your sake and in my flesh I do my share on behalf of his body which is the church in filling up what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ. Now this has always been the case. It will be a heightened sense of this kind of hatred towards Christ and endurance of this hatred by the people of God in this final age. I want you to notice then here what he says. Notice what he says here. That you will be hated by all nations. You will be hated by all nations. So while the world has known this to some extent throughout the ages... There is a universal scope to this hatred that will come about in the final days. And it will increase as Satan is given greater sway over the minds of men. In other words, it will be exponentially more intense in these final days of the beginning of the birth pains. Just to be reminded, go back again to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Notice what Paul says in describing this age. He mentioned that this one is going to come. He's going to be revealed. He's referred to in verse 3 as the man of lawlessness. The son of destruction. One who exalts himself to the place of God. Then he says in verse 7. Or actually look at verse 6. And you know what restrains him now. So that in his time he will be revealed. Verse 7. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. In other words, it's already at work in the world. It's been at work in the world. It will continue to be at work in the world. But there is a decisive moment of change that comes and is marked in this final period. And the point of this change comes in the middle of the verse. When only he who now restrains will do so is taken out of the way is taken out of the way. In other words, there is a sense in which the increase of lawlessness is even in our present day restrained by God. Very likely here, either a reference to the Spirit of Christ and specifically or the Spirit of Christ as His work in, through the church which will be taken out of the way before this final period of wrath of God upon the earth. 
But in either case, the point here is this, that there is a decisive moment when lawlessness will no longer be held at bay as it is now, and it will be given free reign and united under the authority of the man of lawlessness, this final one, this son of destruction. It will be an unrestrained expression of opposition to the name of Christ that is universal, that is universal. Let me just give you a hint of this again in Revelation chapter 13. Revelation chapter 13, we have the account of the rise of the Antichrist in the midst of the seven year period. And he is one who is rising out of the nations. Verse 1 Then I saw a beast coming up out of the sea, having ten horns, seven heads, and on his horns were ten diadems, and on his heads were blasphemous names. Speaking here of his alliance with other nations on which he will receive his power and with which he will work his iniquitous system. It says in verse 7, It was given to him to make war with the saints and to overcome them and authority over every tribe and people and tongue and nation was given to him. In other words, we're not talking about a rogue country, some communist nation alone in the midst of the nations. We're talking about a universal persecution against God's people under this one ruler. And that is very important to notice. For while we have endured suffering, and the church has throughout the ages, it is none like what is coming upon the earth and the people of God in this final time, the beginning of the birth pains. He says in verse 15 of Revelation chapter 13, here referring to the false prophet, and it was given to him to give breath to the image of the beast so that the image of the beast would even speak and cause as many as do not worship the image of the beast to be killed. Again, this is a global persecution and hatred. And as bad as Christian persecution has been, And as bad as it is today, it cannot be said that there is a global persecution and hatred of Christians as is described by John and referred to here by Christ. Indeed, more were martyred for the name of Christ in the 20th century than throughout the history of the church. But it is not a universal hatred. We are gathered here this morning because of freedoms and protections of our nation It's not every nation that has yet come to this level of hatred against the name of Christ. There are places of protection and freedom for the church at this present time. But that will not be the case in the end. That will not be the case under this final system of the Antichrist. It is a hatred by all nations. And again, it cannot be referring to 70 A.D. For the Jews were specifically hated by one nation, the nation of the Rome. They were hated for being Jews and not for the name of their Messiah, Christ. This cannot be referring to 70 A.D., the preterist position we mentioned last week. This is something more than that. This is something future. This is something the world has not yet known. It is a time of unparalleled persecution that is specifically related to the fifth seal of Revelation. In Revelation chapter 5, 
me remind you in verse 9, he says, And when the Lamb broke the fifth seal, I saw underneath the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and because of the testimony which they had maintained. And they cried out with a loud voice, How long, O Lord, holy and true, will you refrain from judging and avenging our blood on those who dwell on the earth? They were told to wait because there were still more of their number yet to be killed. The persecution that had begun would only increase and intensify throughout the entire period of these messianic woes. As a matter of fact, he says in verse 9 of chapter 7 in Revelation, And after these things I looked, these are after the seal judgments, this is during the seventh seal, After these things I looked, and behold, a great multitude which no one could count from every nation and all tribes and peoples and tongues standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes and palm branches, were in their hands. And who are these? These are those, he says in verse 14, who have come out of the great tribulation, and they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb." These are later going to be marked as, or this persecution will later be marked by those who fall victim to the great harlot. Verse 18 of Revelation 17, or excuse me, verse 6 of Revelation 17, And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the witnesses of Jesus. In other words, there is an intensifying element to this persecution that is going to come, this global persecution. It will start great and it will become even greater. So again, the persecution in the early years of the church was significant, but largely sporadic until Diocletian. But then it immediately petered out after that with the reign of Constantine. And the church has certainly known persecution throughout her history, but has never experienced what he speaks of here in Matthew 24. But it gets even worse. Look at what he says in verse 10. And at that time many will fall away and will betray one another and hate one another. And this is terrible. Terrible. And the point is this, that once the persecution arises on this global scale and there is this massive push against all who would name the name of Christ and there is a massive level of death and martyrdom and persecution that is going to happen, that when that happens, many who were naming the name of Christ will be exposed as false believers, as unregenerate professors at that time. You could say, and then would be more literal. And then many will fall away. After the hatred of all of the nations comes against those who have any association with the name of Christ. In other words, these are apostates. These are apostate believers. Those who once named the name of Christ will here side with the system of Antichrist and betray those they once joined hands with and called brother. And sister, here they will turn against them and become their persecutors. And the hatred of the world toward Christ will cause those who were false believers, who once identified with the name of Christ, to be exposed and turn on their own because of fear of persecution. Now again, in one sense, Jesus had already warned about this in the parables. He said, the one on whom seed was sown on the rocky places, this is the man 
who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy, yet he has no firm root in himself. He is unregenerate. There is no repentance. There is no commitment to Christ that is springing from a heart that has seen his glory and trusted in him, that has counted everything lost to gain him. It's temporary. It's superficial. And so in verse 21, because he has no firm root in himself but is only temporary, and when affliction or persecution arises because of the word, immediately he falls away. Why? Because it was never real. It was never real. It was never genuine. Mark 13 refers to this time as brother turning against brother, family members turning against themselves. Now in one sense it will purify the those who profess His name, the body of those who profess His name. But in another, it is heart-wrenchingly terrible. You know, we do get a bit of a glimpse of this, even in the Muslim persecution that's taking place with ISIS. On one article that was dealing with their training up the next generation and getting these young children to commit the most atrocious acts of violence against others, The writer of the article noted this, In schools and mosques and militants infuse children with extremist doctrine, often turning them against their own parents. And so it will be, but only worse, in the time of the Antichrist, when there is such major opposition under this deceptive influence of false religion, under this leader of the Antichrist, fueled by the false prophets and the false Christ and the delusion that God Himself sends upon the world in 2 Thessalonians 2, that the most horrible kind of betrayal will take place. And again, Jesus is not referring here then to a lapse of faith like Peter who said he wouldn't fall away and he denied Christ three times but later repented. He's not talking about that. Some may stumble. What he's talking about here is those who have a permanent and final rejection of the truth of Christ and actually seek then to oppose him. Look at what he says at the end of verse 11. Twice. They will betray one another, hate one another. Again, what was present in the world now seeps into an apostate church, an apostate people who name the name of Christ and they turn against those who were closest to them. Again, God's people have known this, but it will be of a much more massive scale that is in tandem with the unifying system of Antichrist at the end of the age. Look at verse 11. And note this, that it's all under this system of massive, massive deception. Many false prophets will arise and mislead many. So out of the same horrendous environment of betrayal, death, and persecution, and hatred, there will arise an ever-increasing and intensifying effort of Satan at deception. Again, he's already mentioned these in verse 5, the false Christ who will come. He mentions them later in verse 24. False Christ and false prophets will arise. And here he focuses on the false prophets. Those deceivers who will go out in the world, as we mentioned earlier before, marked by great signs and great deception so as to deceive, if possible, he says in verse 24, even the elect, even God's own. So great will this deception be in this time. It is relentless. It is unending. It is powerful. And most of the world will follow along with it. 
And if it were possible, and it's not, even the elect would have been deceived, but they are kept by the power of God, which we'll mention in a minute, moment. Turn quickly over to Revelation chapter 17. I just want to mention this, illustrate this a bit more. This is, again, not simply a large presence of those who oppose Christ. It's not a single nation. It's not even a few nations. This is a unified system of rebellion against the name of Christ that is under a leader. Now, in Revelation 17, this false system, this false religious system is pictured as a great harlot, a great harlot. He says in verse 17, Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and spoke with me, saying, Come here, I will show you the judgment of the great harlot who sits on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth committed acts of immorality, and those who dwell on the earth were made drunk with the wine of her immorality. Indeed, sexual immorality is included in a general sense here, but what he's talking about here is a spiritual immorality, a spiritual perversion, a spiritual unfaithfulness. It's all gathered together under this one system and even leader here referred to as the great harlot, the great harlot. It includes the apostate Christian church as well as other false religions. One has noted this, speaking of this harlot, pragmatic considerations will dictate cooperation with the powers that be in an atmosphere that is strongly anti-God and eventually boils down to worshiping the beast. Included in this compromising alliance are now, but even more so in the future, the apostate church, which has eagerly sought and solicited an adulterous relationship with world political powers. End quote. I think he's right. I think he's right. This is a perverted mixture, a symbiotic relationship, as it were, between this false religious system and the powers of the world that are united together with all of their ability to persecute the name of Christ and to establish their own domination and rebellion to the God who is. And I would suggest to you that this kind of thing is evident today. Even in denominations that have long rejected the authority of God's word and commend sins such as homosexuality and all other manners of wickedness or who pervert the gospel to attain their own self-pleasing idolatry. We've mentioned some who have $65 million jets. This time is coming and the time referred to here is where it will be universal and unrestrained and that kind of apostate religion will be the norm and it will be the very world system that the people live under. And I want to make a footnote here that Satan is not opposed to religion. He's opposed to the truth. And that's very important to understand. He's not opposed to religion. He's opposed to the truth about Christ. He doesn't work in the final days through the absolution of religion or the destruction of religion, but as he always does, through the perversion of religion. The new atheists then are not the greatest threat to the church. It is the purveyors of a false way of salvation who distort the gospel who are the greatest threat to the church. Who are the greatest threat to God's people. 
He says in chapter 7 of Matthew, he reminds us that beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves, ravenous wolves, coming only to destroy, to kill, and to feed their own lust. And so that will be the dominant characteristic of this coming time. And again, this spirit is already in the world. It's already there. False prophets are already in the world. Satan is already deceiving. Antichrist is already in the world. There are already false teachers, but it will be magnificently increased. It will be global in these final days. Revelation 13 mentions that they deceive the whole world. Deceive the whole world. Through their false system of religion and false signs. And I want to note too, secondly, this. That people will be deceived as people are now. Not because they are good people who are being duped. Good people who are being led astray. But wicked people who are following after their own lust. Again, note the deception is specifically attached to the unrestrained expression of evil. For this reason, God will send upon them a deluding influence so that they will believe what is false. What is the reason? It's that which comes with all the deception of wickedness. Of wickedness. He says in verse 12 that they all may be judged who did not believe the truth but took pleasure in wickedness. This is just unrestrained expression of wickedness in the world. This deception will match up with that and lead many astray. This is a world that has been given over to its lust. And notice what he says next then. It will descend then this world of apostasy, this world of persecution and massive death, this world united under one leader, this world filled with false Christ and false prophets that is coming. And he says then it will lead in verse 12 to lawlessness and lovelessness. A deep slide into these things because lawlessness is increased, most people's love will go grow cold. Again, this is the result of such deception and unbridled lust. And note the relationship again between these two. The increase of lawlessness is the cause of the increase of a lack of love, of people's love growing cold. By lawlessness, he simply means this, that it will be a universal pursuit of life that refuses to recognize any divine law or any divine authority. It's essentially the full expression of what Paul mentioned in Romans 3 when he says, describing unregenerate man, that there is no fear of God before their eyes. No fear of God at all. And so they give over into whatever want and lust the heart drives them to. And again, it's comprehensive. It's comprehensive. Lawlessness is a term that encompasses all sin, really. Everything that fails to conform to the glory of God and the holiness of God. He says in 1 John chapter 3, Everyone who practices sin also practices lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. And that lawlessness marks those, he says in verse 10, who are children of the devil. Children of the devil. Is strong, strong terms here. 
He'd already exposed this, Jesus did in 23 of these religious leaders. He says this, You are like whitewashed tombs which appear beautiful on the outside, but inside are full of dead men's bones and uncleanliness. You too outwardly appear righteous to men, but inwardly you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. There they had a mask of religion to the true God, but hearts of lawlessness that led to the persecution and the death and the betrayal of their own God. But in the final days, it will be unmasked and it will be a lawlessness that has no pretensions of faithfulness to the true God and it will be unrestrained in its influence on the hearts of men. It will be complete. As a matter of fact, in Revelation 17.3, that Great harlot is said to wear a crown that has many blasphemous names. Openly blasphemous names against Christ by the world leader and all of those who follow Him. Of course, at the heart of the law, as Jesus explained to the leaders, is love to God and love to neighbor. So where lawlessness is increased, where there is no power of the law by the Spirit of God on the heart of man, there is then a lack of love. A lack of love. And that's what he mentions next. Because of this, most love, the love of most will grow cold. The evidence of the soul so deadened by sin and a rejection of the truth is a lack of love. A lack of love, a callousness, a hardness, a hardness against even the most basic sense of love toward God and love toward man. As a matter of fact, it is an even greater expression of what he mentions in Romans when a culture is given over. He says they become slanderers, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents. Listen, without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, and unmerciful. Why? Because they've been given over to lawlessness. And that's what marks it. Listen to how he describes it even in the church, the once professing church. In 2 Timothy, he says, Realize this, that in the last days, difficult times will come. Men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips, without self-control, brutal, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Well, that describes the world to come. That describes the world to come at the beginning of the birth pains. However, Jesus is probably referring to something even deeper here. Not only this lack of lovelessness and lawlessness that will infect the whole world, but again, this is in the context also of those who have fallen away who once named the name of Christ. The love he refers to here is the one you're familiar with, agape, which generally, although it developed after this, but is the biblical word that describes most often, not all very time, but most often the love of God's people for one another and for God. Here and then he's referring most likely to those who have specifically abandoned a previous profession of faith in Christ and now are cold, 
deceitful, betraying in their love toward others or their lack of love toward others. But notice this. Notice the opposite side of this. He says, because lawlessness has increased, most people's love will grow cold. But the reality is the love of the true believers will not grow cold. It will not grow cold. In the midst of this suffering, there is, even by God's people, a presence of love for one's enemies and a proclamation of the truth. Commenting on this, one said this, Jesus' sermon on the end of the world is simply Jesus' sermon on the mount under pressure. End quote. That's a good quote. While the saints in heaven that come out of the tribulation seek retribution on God's enemies, which was mentioned in Revelation 6, God's saints on earth in the tribulation seek also the salvation of their enemies and to bear faithful witness to Christ. Look at verse 13. Verse 13, and notice here that there is a word of hope. A word of hope in the midst of all of this. He says, But the one who endures to the end, he will be saved. Verse 14, and the gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all the nations. In the midst of such devastation and darkness, he gives two words of hope. First, then, the promise of salvation. The one who endures to the end, he shall be saved. He shall be saved. The suffering will be great for God's people during this time, but the salvation is certain and it far outweighs the sacrifice and the pain. Salvation here refers to the completed salvation, the full salvation that is in Christ. Saved from sin, saved from hell, saved to eternal fellowship with God in His presence. You know, there, there are different aspects to our salvation. We have been saved because of the work of Christ. Scripture says we are being saved because of the keeping work of Christ by the Spirit. And we will be saved in the future when we recognize the full reality of our salvation. And that's what he's referring to here. Those who endure to the end will experience all of the fullness of the blessings that are promised in Christ. They will be saved. You will know the full fruit of your endurance. They must endure, however, to the end. The end simply means this, the end of their life, whatever they must endure on earth. Many will die before the actual end comes. The end here is those who persevere and do not count their life precious, even unto death, all the way up to the end of their life. All of those who do such, even to the end of the age, will be saved. In other words, endurance then is the mark of genuine salvation. He's not saying endurance is the ground of salvation. He's saying then that it is the mark of salvation. The mark of salvation. It is the what proves the reality of the grace that they have been shown. And the failure to endure does not give evidence of the loss of salvation, but that the profession of faith was never genuine to begin with. We already read Matthew 13. Let me remind you of 1 John chapter 2. They went out from us, he says, but they were not really of us. For if they had been of us, they would have remained with us. In other words, they would have endured to the end. They would have not been sucked into the world's lies. They would not have been pulled back out of fear into the world, out of fear of persecution, but they would have endured to the end. But they did not. So we ask, are they Christians who fell away? Did they lose their salvation? 
Did God somehow remove His Spirit from those who were indwelled by Him? And John's answer is no. No. They never did belong to Him. They were like the false soils who gave some some outward expression of faith in Christ, but in the end were exposed to have hearts that were not converted. And the evidence of this then is the evidence of God's work in the heart. The evidence of God's work in the heart. It's not your strength that enables you to persevere. It is the strength of the Spirit in you. Notice a couple points quickly here. The evidence of God's work then is the fear of God and the hatred of sin that will persevere to the end. A trust in Christ and a love for Him and an obedience to Him that will persevere to the end. This is not meant then to make either the believers at the time or us to say then that I can just skate on through and I have nothing to worry about. I don't, I don't have to worry about seeking to work out my salvation with fear and trembling. I have but just to know that God will do everything. That's not what he's saying. In fact, the very evidence of those who have the Spirit of God and persevere to the end are the ones who fear deeply when they see sin in their life that in fact that could happen to them and it leads them to repentance. It leads them to repentance. These are those who take sin very seriously. Those who take the Word of God very seriously and their spiritual life. It's not those who then say, well, it doesn't really matter then. I can just not worry about it. Not at all. Not at all. One has said that God uses these warnings and conditional promises as part of the machinery by which He ensures their final safety. And indeed, He does. He does. They read this then to the, those who are suffering. We read this as those who are sometimes weary and we are encouraged then to press on. The one who endures to the end, he will be saved. It is like saying, hold on till the end. Don't give up. Salvation is the end. Don't throw it away. Don't fall away. Hang on. Christ will sustain you. He will enable you to do so. This is an immense comfort to the true child of God. For in the end, it's not then our own strength which is so prone to fail, but it is the power of God and His Spirit in us who will enable us to persevere. Let me give you just one verse here to put in your mind with that. Romans 8.17. You don't have to turn there. Let me just read it to you. Paul is identifying those who truly are in Christ and have no condemnation in Him. They are those then who by the Spirit of God have been united to Christ and His work on the cross and are marked by those who have a mind set on the Spirit, not that is set on the flesh. And he says then, if Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, yet the Spirit alive because of righteousness, the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead, that speaking of the Spirit of the Father, who is also the Spirit of Christ, dwells in you. He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who indwells you. He is by that Spirit then motivating us to put to death the deeds of the body. By that Spirit leading us to show that we are sons of God. By that Spirit confirming the adoption that we have in Christ by which we cry out, Abba, Father. And by that Spirit testifying with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, heirs also, heirs of God, fellow heirs with Christ, listen to this. If indeed we suffer with 
Him so that we may be glorified with Him. It is the Spirit of God who enables this. It is the Spirit of God who enables one to persevere because of the relationship to the Father through Christ and to suffer with Christ. But notice the second word of hope then is that the gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all of the nations. The world here is not earth. It literally means inhabited earth, inhabited world. Now again, some try to make this fulfilled in the reality by the time of 70 AD, but that is simply too much of a stretch. And while he doesn't mean that every single individual in the entire world necessarily will hear the gospel, he does mean that every nation in the world will have a gospel witness at some level. And this is amazing. Remember, he is, he is saying this in the midst of the time of the birth pains, of the re- worldwide rejection of Christ, and yet God will not leave himself without a witness to his Son and all that he has done in him. Despite the overwhelming power of darkness, the gospel will still be heard and its power unto salvation for those who believe will still be affected. Indeed, while the power of darkness is great and will be great, it is God who ultimately gives that power and God's power will also bring it to an end. In other words, Satan reigns because he's God's devil and he allows him to reign to fulfill his purposes. And when those purposes are ended, God will put him away and judge him. And in the midst of, still of while he gives Satan that reign, he still is accomplishing his purposes of salvation and the gospel will go forth. Although it's not only of salvation, he's also accomplishing his purposes of judgment. Paul said he's an aroma of death to death and life to life. Those who reject that glorious gospel will only increase their judgment. But the gospel will go forth even in the kingdom of the Antichrist, even in this worldwide rebellion against the name of Christ, even in this worldwide persecution, the gospel will go forth he says of those in the first or the fifth seal that they, because of the testimony they had maintained, in other words, their faith in the testimony and also their death or their death that was because of faithfulness to Christ was also a testimony to Christ. In chapter 11, verse 7, he says that there are two witnesses that will be raised up by God. Verse 7, once they have finished their testimony, the beast comes up out of the abyss and will make war with them and overcome them and will kill them. In 14.6 of Revelation, he says this, And I saw another angel flying in mid-heaven, having an eternal gospel to preach to those who live on the earth and to every nation and tribe and tongue and people. And he said with a loud voice, Fear God and give Him glory, because the hour of His judgment has come. Worship Him who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and springs of water. In Revelation 17, 6, we read it, the blood of Satan's with the witness and the blood of the witnesses of Jesus. In other words, God maintains his witness to the end. And in particular, he maintains his witness through the suffering and the death of his people. One has said that Christian suffering is itself that missionary proclamation. By suffering as Jesus suffered, they are making him present in the world. And so after this testimony is finished, this proclamation is finished, he says at the end of verse 14, and then the end will come. And the end here is the end. 
the final events before the appearing of Christ, the final events before this present world system is utterly destroyed, the final events before that last furious attempt by the Antichrist to destroy the people of God and the work of God, the end that is coming upon the world, the messianic woes, the time of trouble. And it will come with terrible fury, but God's people will remain steadfast to the end. And we, in the Lord's table this morning, are demonstrating then our hope in that very truth. That the end will come and our Savior will return and with Him He will bring His saints. He will usher in His salvation. He will establish His kingdom on this earth. And we remember the cost of our endurance and our salvation, which is His death, His broken body, and His blood spilled. We remember that we endure in our salvation that He is granted because of the once for all sacrifice of Christ. Because of the Spirit who is poured out on His people through that sacrifice as a gift of what He purchased for us. We endure because He is faithful and He does not change. We endure because we are united to Christ. And we endure as we encourage one another to be faithful to the end because the days are evil. So this is what we remember in the Lord's Supper. And we remember it together. And we remember once again to bring our lives before Him and freshly commit ourselves to obedience and to faithfulness in this world. Let's pray and then we'll, men will pass out the elements. Our Father, we, with eyes of faith that you have given, which is your gift, we look to you as the sovereign one. We look to you for all that you have accomplished for us in your son. Our Lord, we look to you as the one who has redeemed us, the one who is returning, the one in whom we abide and have fellowship with you and through you with the Father by the Spirit. And we ask you to impress these things upon our heart to help us to grow in holiness, to live sober in this world and to demonstrate the reality of salvation which is not a lack of love but the very flourishing of it by the Spirit. A love for one another that flows from a love for you and even our God, a love for the world that is faithful to tell them the truth of Christ even if it means the cost of our own lives. Help us to demonstrate that. We ask now that by your Spirit you would encourage us as we remember this table that you, our Lord, have commanded us to do. We pray this in your precious name. Amen.